Welcome to Just Checking In. I'm Becky Buckman. And I'm Kiana Corliss. Each week, we'll use humor, a little irony, and definitely some self-deprecation to dive into the world of high-tech corporate comms. We'll use our expertise and less-than-serious take on the tech news cycle to bring you the best in the business across comms and media for one-of-a-kind insights and perspectives you won't hear anywhere else. Get ready to laugh and maybe even start a tweet thread. This is Just Checking In. Becky, I just saw the best meme I've ever seen on Instagram. What is it? It's about the three stages of career development. The first one is, I can't wait until I'm in these meetings. The second Mm -hmm. one is, I'm so excited I get to be part of these meetings. And the third one, and this is where I am, I will do anything legal and several illegal things to get out of these meetings. (laughs) We are at the same stage of career. I am at I've hit yes. stage three. <laughs> stage three, I right? It sounds like yeah, it sounds bad and medical almost. Stage three, but no, it's true. <laughs> stage it's three, true, career well, you're new to an organization. You want to make sure you know what's going on. You need exposure to the more senior people in the org. But yeah, I find that all of my creative time happens after about three to four p.m. in the day because the earlier part of the day is all meetings which isn't great. But listen, we're back to talking to another journalist or now ex-journalist on the pod, the great Joe Williams, who's worked for a variety of publications, including Bloomberg, but the most recently Protocol, which as we know, closed up shop. I guess it was a couple months ago, right? They did. And when we interviewed Joe, he had, I think he had just been laid off. It'd been, been, I think, like a month or a few weeks and he was still finding what he wanted to do and and how he was going to go about the next part of his his journey. And but he had a lot of really interesting things to say. He had a lot of really interesting perspective on the state of the media. He still had really good, I think, advice and counsel for folks in our industry about, you know, working with journalists. The good news is, is he had free time, which he says right off the bat. Exactly. But no, he's got great insights from both sides of his career. Now, I think he's doing some writing and consulting, but he was a journalist for a long time. And we know the media landscape is ever changing in these crazy times in this market. So I think everyone's going to enjoy hearing from Joe. Yeah, let's do it. Super pumped about our guest today. A lot of you will know this guy, Joe Williams, technology journalist, spent a long time at Protocol. He spent some time at Bloomberg, currently is on the podcast scene because he is unemployed. (laughs) (laughs) So he decided to join our little podcast. How are you, Joe? Good, good. It's it's amazing the things that uh, being unemployed will free you up to do. So I'm glad uh, I'm glad we could make this work. I mean, when you said you wouldn't do this because you had to work, I was like, well, shut the place down. <laughs> exactly. It's a shame too. This would have been free press for protocol, but you know they could still go to the website. We just don't get paid for it. So <laughs> <laughs> that's true. Well, I guess we should catch everybody up, right? A lot of people know that protocol shut down, I think, earlier this season, earlier this year. Do you want to give the little update on how that happened or what the lay of the land was there? Yeah, it was kind of one of those harsh realities that the media is not immune to everything going on. And particularly when you're in a niche industry, or maybe not niche, but when you're a beat publication and the industry you're covering is going through a tough time, it's pretty evident that that's going to filter down to you. Depressing in that you know we really thought we were building something you know unique and, and special in the industry. And um, you know, I think anytime you see somebody kind of trying to do something new and, and that fail can have kind of a chilling effect. But, you know, I think we're proud of 
what we were able to accomplish. And unfortunately, this is how it all had to play out in the end. But we're not unlike, you know, the many other tech employees that are unemployed this holiday season. So at least we're in good company. I know. Well, as I was telling you earlier, I was laid off from journalism once, so I know how you feel. Were you really? I didn't know that. I left the Wall Street Journal many years ago to go to Forbes, and my timing was terrible because it was in 2008. And as it turned out, the journal was on a bit of a firmer financial footing than Forbes was because they were still family owned. But that launched my career onto the dark side where I get to hang out with people like Kiana and do podcasts on TechCom. So it all worked out. And Joe, I, I have no doubt it'll work out for you. What do you think the landscape looks like going forward? I mean, obviously, we're, you know, everybody's talking about going into a recession and we could talk about how the short term economics may be playing into media companies having to lay people off or shut down entirely. But there's also kind of a longer term existential issue at play. What do you think about the long term kind of prospects and economics for the for the media business? I've always found the media as as an industry that suffers from very cyclical thinking. You saw, you know, when there was the recession back in 08, 09, I mean, that's right when I was really getting into the industry. And everybody at the time was talking about how it was dead and how advertising drying up was going to be the end of it. And you saw the emergence of some really good subscription models. And and I think, you know, for a long time, that was really kind of in vogue. You know, you had podcasts and you had all those other, you know, ancillary things that, that gained steam. But, you know, it was really this notion of, okay, if it's premium, high quality journalism, we should support that with people paying for us as opposed to advertising. And I've worked at numerous newsrooms that employed that. I think somewhere along the way, uh, you saw, you know, particularly in an industry like tech that was getting a boom, those kind of issues around advertising dollars a little bit subside a little bit because companies had you know free capital to, to put towards that. And I think now, you know, you're seeing the effects of relying too heavily on on that one revenue stream. My hope is that we as an industry kind of think through more critically, you know, what does our revenue models look like and, and can a subscription model be sustainable? I, I always thought it was surprising at Protocol how much premium journalism we effectively gave away for free compared to outlets that I would say are ch- were charging for journalism that I did not think was at the quality that we were producing. So I think it's something that, um, you know, a lot of organizations, a lot of media organizations are still struggling with. Business Insider, you know, just went through a big change where they are moving some of their subscription back to freemium or back to free and I think it's just, you know, still a work in progress, despite it being a topic that you know has been under discussion for you know, two decades now. Forbes actually did a great job with this as they started to figure out sort of the paid content route. If your B2B clients want to do bylines and such, great, pay for them. I think you saw like a really interesting blurring of the lines. You know, for a lot of us comms people, we're like completely allergic to paying for editorial placement. And it's really hard for us to, to sort of do so. Um, but then you saw like a lot of marketing dollars go there and it sort of changed the entire landscape of content marketing. That's become harder to do to your point. Like when, when you've got, you know, slashed marketing budgets, it's hard to justify some of these other revenue streams. For sure. And if I had all the answers, I would probably start my own media company and hope it would be really successful. But, you know, I think there's some um... Hope, I mean, you're seeing some of the newer media companies that have come up starting off subscription model and you're seeing Axios, you know, expanded a subscription, some others. And I think, you know, we'll probably find some way to even out between the two. Uh, but I think, you know, it's just this continued notion of this, I think, fear that consumers aren't going to want to pay. And I think it's misguided because I think 
they don't want to pay for journalism that they don't want or that they don't find useful. But if you're providing, you know, a service, if you're providing useful journalism, if you're providing really in-depth analysis, you know, and it's not all flash in the pan scoops. I mean, I, I just think there's a market for that. And I think, um, you know, I'm sad we couldn't explore that more protocol and see what that would have looked like. But, but I just, you know, I've worked for enough publications that survived based on providing, you know, an educated audience, the content that they want and be able to charge for that, that I have hope, you know, that that at least will continue. And, you know, you will still see high quality beat journalism be supported by those who find it useful. I think this came up on the last season of the podcast. We might have talked to Alex Wilhelm about this, Kiana, at TechCrunch. But there's also this trend of really pretty good, well-known journalists leaving companies entirely just to like start their own Substack And You know, as a former journalist, I look at that with a lot of interest, but also some trepidation because I wonder, well, if you're doing that and you're writing really tough stories, like what happens if you get sued? You know, if you're at Protocol or the Journal or BI, like you have protection from a libel lawyer, you know, hired by your publications. Do you think those models will last? Because in some ways, I wonder if that model is a disincentive to actually do hard hitting journalism. It has never emerged as an option for me, mostly just because I'm I'm a newsroom guy. I think there's a lot of value in it. At the end of the day, it's your name on the story, and and you should be the one that has the most like closest ear to the ground of what's going on. But working you know by yourself, I I worry about kind of tunnel vision, or I worry about not having that second set of eyes or that that newsroom to kind of you know, bounce That's ideas what I off think of. About. And, yeah. And it's it's just I think you can almost get yourself in this, you know, you only think what you want to think and you publish what you want to publish. And there's going to be people that love that and people who love you and want to hear your news. But, you know, do I think it's the most beneficial at the end of the day? That's where I go back and forth. I'll tell you this. Eric Newcomer, bless his heart, scooped both of my billion dollar funding rounds on his Substack. When, uh, oh, I believe me. I re- I remember. <laughs> I probably emailed you right afterwards. I, I, I swear to you, the second time I saw his number on my phone and I answered with, Eric, who do you know? <laughs> I think it goes to show, you know, you can break some really, really great scoops by yourself without the need for that, you know, mm-hmm. banner behind you. But there's a lot of advantages to to having that newsroom. hundred percent. You know, having the newsroom, having the editorial team, having sort of the backup. We had Brad Stone on the podcast as well. He, you know, wrote the book about Bezos. And there's like a whole chapter about Bezos buying the Washington Post and sort of like what happened when Bezos went to the Washington Post and some of the things he tried to implement and some of the things that like just didn't work. And I don't know if you've had a chance to read that story or no, but do we just need a whole bunch of Bezoses to inject money into the the billionaire business model? Right. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. The billionaire business model. Like, is this what's going to save? Because I think about like local papers, too. You know what I mean? Like those are there's one thing with the protocols and tech crunches of the world, but like the local papers, it's really hard. Yeah. I mean, I would say God help us all if we're resting our future on the backs of these billionaires. <laughs> Elon, <laughs> Elon's coming next. <laughs> yeah. I will say, right. you know, Protocol was backed by a, a billionaire and we see all our story turned out. So it's, <laughs> it's not, not always as advantageous as one might hope. But, you know, at the same time, I understand a lot of these guys get criticism or these you know, backers, these billionaires that want to come in. But it's one of those. Do we really have a lot of other options? I mean, I wish it was another situation or I wish it wasn't the case. But if your option is, you know, a sole billionaire or a private equity company, I mean, which seems more advantageous there, probably the sole billionaire. At least it's more of a passion project for him than maybe, you know, a way to make a ton of money. There hasn't been a ton of success there. I mean time under Benioff. I, I don't know how much they've grown. Um, 
you know, the post obviously is doing layoffs. So it's it's kind of one of those you're screwed no matter what you do, maybe. That's an upbeat Christmas <laughs> message. There you go. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I think for a long time, there's been a very legacy mindset around journalism. And I think there's good reason for that. You know, I think there's fear that modernizing too quickly will undercut some of the you know, core foundations that make journalism journalism. And, you know, especially when you've been a journalist 30, 40 years, like you want to keep doing what you've been doing. Um, and so I'm enlightened. I think that there is a lot of younger journalists who are pushing for change in this industry and pushing newsrooms to think differently, both in terms of operations, in terms of diversity, in terms of the stories they cover. Um, I just hope, you know, that they went out and that they their voices can cut through again a lot of, I think, this legacy mindset that still clouds so much of this industry. No, for sure. Well, listen, maybe we could shift gears a little bit. I also want to talk a little bit about, you know, some of the technology areas that you've been covering most recently and hopefully we'll be covering again. You know, Kiana's got a lot of experience in B2B tech. You know, I work for a, a venture firm that also is, you know, largely um, enterprise technology. And I don't know, I just think coming from your world, I'm acutely aware, and I'm sure Kiana is as well, of how difficult it is to pitch some of these stories, you know, because it is not Uber, it's not Airbnb, it's not easy to understand. And you're one of the few journalists who was writing about these, you know, really wonky tech issues. Maybe you can talk about what makes a good story for you and how you could work with comms people on this productively, because I think often the pitching process for this stuff is not productive. I would agree. And admittedly, I understand, you know, it can be very tough to pitch because some of the stuff can get complicated. I always kind of viewed the tech part of it as as the fun challenge um, you know, to be able to try to understand it and write about it in a way that made sense. For that exact reason, I think it's it's an industry that needs to be demystified or at least talked about in a demystified scenario. Um, you know, the cloud has been around for over a decade now and people know what it is. It's inescapable. And I think to still talk about it like it's some futuristic like Star Trek concept is really disadvantageous and frankly, I think kind of insulting to the reader. At the same time, you know, I understand figuring out what quantum computing is and writing about it in a way that is accessible to somebody that doesn't know what it is is, is a tough task. I think for me, I always thought pitches kind of would cater to the lowest common denominator in that they would pitch very artificial, superficial stories. I think out of fear that going too technical or going too deep would alienate, you know, me or, or other reporters. Um, and I would actually always encourage and ask, you know, the way to get me to cover your company is not, you know, to pitch me and your CEO saying the same thing that every other CEO is saying, but reach out to me and, and introduce me to the product. Give me a demo, you know, introduce me to your engineers, the people working on it. And that sort of more open approach I think it's just so much more advantageous in this industry where you're getting bombarded day and day by product announcements and by so many different things and so many companies and funding rounds, like taking the time to say, hey, like, let us walk you actually through the product and let us you know, let you talk to people that can give you a more unvarnished view of it was really, I think, how I built some of the best relationships at Databricks, you know, when Canada yeah. was still there. I mean, you were so instrumental in kind of setting up and making me learn about the company. And I think that's one of the reasons, you know, that I was so interested in the company is you taking the time to say, you know, what do you need to understand us and what we're doing better? Um, and I don't think a lot of press people do that. So I appreciate that. You know, I see people all the time that are like, they write these pitches and they've written the story for you. And I'm like, no journalist wants you to write their story. They've got to sort of find what's cool themselves. 
right? Like no one is ever going to write what you tell them to write. It's just, this is America. No one likes being told what to do. Yeah, it's amazing, but you're right. A lot of people still do that and think that. And I'm like, the journalist needs to come up with the story themselves. Yeah. You give them the tools to find it, right? But they need to find it. And if you want to go Leonardo DiCaprio and do Inception or whatever, like that's your jam. Like that makes you real good. To your point, Joe, I think, you know, letting people kind of have this open-ended understanding of what's going on and sort of find the stories themselves and maybe like leading them in, in certain directions is great, but we lose a lot of that. I also think, and this a little bit goes back to our previous conversations, I think like the media has is become really interesting in terms of like how almost like polarizing or news baity or or clickbaity it needs to become that I think a lot of comms people are stuck somewhere between like do I pitch my product do I need it to be clickbait how do we fit into this world when we're not all that maybe like sexy on the outside right for sure. And I mean, again, like that is understandably a challenge, you know, for a lot of these B2B companies. It's like, how do you make accounting software the thing you want to cover when everybody wants to cover Elon Musk's meltdown? It kind of goes back again to what I was saying, you know, about protocol is, you know, to be able to do that kind of journalism, you really do need the backing and the trust of, you know, the editorial team um, and the trust that, you know, there is an audience out there that craves this kind of news. And I still 100% believe that that's true. And I think our traffic on our website was enough to kind of prove that, that you know, people want to understand this. And I think continuing to talk about it and to treat the audience as uneducated um, is, uh, is just alienating them further. Uh, and I think it's just, you know, the, taking the risk and going deep into these technical issues and understanding them and writing about them, it opens up like so much. I mean, AI is such a crazy buzzy field. And if you ask the average person like what it is, I, I don't know if they would under, be able to understand it. You know, they would say, oh, it's image generation, it's whatever. But there's a ton of really fascinating AI work going on that it just gets glossed over because I think people get nervous about covering it because it is such a complicated, can't be such a complicated topic. And well, I think it's yeah. only going to get worse as you see you know, all this other technology on the horizon get more prominent. Well, yeah, I mean, it's everything from like ex machina to like, you know, GBT and like everyone writing their stories or whatever using it and like that's buzzy. And um, but actually, it's also like how we, you know, figured out how to do the COVID vaccines quickly. Like that was also with AI. And I mean, you talk about the cloud. It is such a broad term. It means like, I mean, it could be storage. There's so many companies that call themselves cloud companies that do a million different things. And so making it one generic term is, is hard. It makes sense, you know, as a marketer, like you want to glob on to what's like being talked about and what's buzzy. When you're in an industry that is so overclogged, it's, you know, you're just one of the you know 7,000 cloud companies now that are out there. And whenever I report, you know, one of the things I was challenging myself to do was to think in terms of like the end purchaser for a lot of this technology and think, you know, what are the questions I want to be asking and then ask those companies that. And I mean, I always think if I'm a IT purchaser right now, I, I mean, I have to be in hell. I think every day there has to be a new, you know, product out there that I have to have. You know, if I ever want to operate to the scale and effectiveness that I dream of, like you have to have this new product. And I mean, how do you keep track of all that? You know, and and I mean, when you read the, some of the news coverage out there, you know, it'll be like so and so company got two hundred million dollar fundraising and. Nowhere in the story does it really say, you know, what the product is. You're just stuck in a right. sea of well-funded companies with no idea what they do. And 
I think that's part of the reason we're in the problem we're in now is people didn't have to focus on product strategy. They could just bank on, you know, going to get a few teams within an organization to download their software. And I think now, you know, the real challenge is going to be how do you stand your product out in a market where free capital is no longer a thing. Joe, you're going to have chief marketing officers for days reaching out to you after this. This is, this is like Tell the them. greatest job interview of all time. Yes, we're just trying to help. We're just trying to help. Uh, what's, yeah. our, what's our fee? What's our recruiting fee, Becky? Oh, I don't know. We'll get a cut right of your first year. Um, That's right. Salary. <laughs> what's your biggest tech comms PR turnoff? Like maybe you could even provide specific examples without naming names, which would be fun, but. But if you do want to name names, that's fine, too. Yeah, that's fine, too. Yeah, as long as it's not us. <laughs> yeah. You know, I get asked this question all the time, um, and I never have a good answer. Because I, 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 there's I so like many. There's, no. Really, it's like I understand that the PR people have a job to do, so I really try to like not get that mad about things. Um, because at the end of the day, it's just technology. But... I guess probably two things. Like one is a bit more simple. I would just get asked all the time, like, what are you working on? Or like, you know, let's talk, let's connect and just figure out what, what you're working on. And I get that that like desire to be helpful about that. But it was always like, I don't know, if I want to tell you what I'm working on, like <laughs> I would probably tell you what I'm working on. Um, <laughs> like it's like you should become, you know, like come to me with some kind of idea versus just like tell me what you're doing and then let me shove whatever my client is into that. Um, it just felt like very, you know, transactional. And then I think you're just in general, not wanting to, not like willing to work. Like there's some companies that will remain nameless, but I think, you know, any clients at my Twitter feed would probably understand who it is. Um, that just would flat out ignore us. And I understand like not wanting to participate in a negative story or not wanting to participate in a story you deem as negative. I'll say that. Um, but I was never a journalist that was like, I'm going to tell you, you know, half the story and then let you read it in the you know, article, like we would send these companies very detailed descriptions without actually sending the story and right. giving them the opportunity, giving them ample time. They would ignore us. And then you would hear that they went to, you know, other reporters to try to badmouth our story on background. And you would see, you know, a source familiar appear in somebody else's story refuting it. And it was just this very, I thought, ineffective way of basically being a brat because the story you want isn't the story that's being told. And I think I, like, you know, I the comms, this I, yeah. me <laughs> <laughs> and it's like comms, like your job is to manage the story. And sometimes that story is what you want and we can all kumbaya. And right. sometimes that story is not what you want, but I don't think you can ignore it. And I think, you know, it's a detriment to the story. It's a detriment to you as a company and ultimately a detriment to the reader that you don't deem it necessary to even engage. And I never understood that. If you're being nice enough to give people ample time to comment and giving them, you know, the information specifically that you want comment to, like we used to call that no surprises journalism, that's really nice of you to do that because not everybody does it. So I would hope that people would play ball with you and return the favor. I also have always been like super, I mean, this is a PR hill I will die on, but like to me, the relationships you build with reporters as a comms person are so important, like always, not just when there's a bad story coming out or whatever, or a good story coming out. If you have those relationships and you trust one another and you know, I, you know, Joe, you're trying to do your job, Kiana's trying to do her job. And it's like, look, if you can think, say things on background, you can think, say things off the record. Like I can give you like, context as to why something is the way it is or, or give you sort of the truth and like at least like help sort of 
influence that in some way. We might not, like, there were a lot of times, like, we couldn't comment on things for legal reasons. Like, we just really couldn't. But I'd be like, you know what? Look, I'm going to talk to you on background or off the record because I can't comment on this publicly. But let me, like, give you some insight so that you're not just, like, writing this blind, right? Like, exactly. it's, it's beneficial to me for you to have full context of what's going on. And exactly. reporters are human beings. They have the same sort of subconscious tendencies that anybody else does, right? When you're working with them, there is a subconscious there that like the story comes out better. It's just like human nature. And I don't know why like people don't understand this. To that point, like we are you know, the same human being that you are and we're, are we always going to get everything right in a story? Like, no, that's like insane expectations to put on a reporter. And, you know, it could be something very minor, like, oh, you got this product wrong or it could be something big, like you got the scoop, you were misinformed. I don't think that's always the case, but I mean, in the same way, like, you know, you participating, even on a background way to just like an educate, like you can address some of those discrepancies that you think are there and at least give us the chance to think about that. Uh, right. Because if we don't know what it is that you're objecting to, like, we have no way to consider that of whether we're wrong or we're right. And there's this mindset, I think that like, once we reach out, everything is set in stone and nothing will change. And I realize that for some stories that might be true and for some reporters that might be true. But for us, I mean, you know, we would very much hear these companies out if they had an issue with the story before or after published. Um, you know, many cases, my editor and I would get on the call together and hear them out. And, you know, there were often times where we did make changes or we added supplemental information to make, make something make more sense. Like, it's never perfect. And the idea that like, we know everything and we're always right. Like that's a terrible mindset. Just as like, you shouldn't have that mindset as a company that you're always right. Um, and right. I just thought, I mean, you know, I, I am always right though. Yeah. <laughs> so that's different. What you're describing is like a mature, real model of journalism. And I think the problem exactly. is that not, not everyone is practicing it because, you know, people who are really young and don't have a lot of experience or, you know, in positions of power with, no, I mean, I'm shocked at like no editing. I mean, there are sites that we all know and care about and want to be featured in where I'm not sure those stories are are reviewed by anybody but the reporter, you know, but and that's frightening to me. No, absolutely. And there's also this kind of gotcha mentality in journalism now. Like obviously this, you know, everyone wants a scoop and does it feel great to get a scoop? Yeah, it does. You get a rush from it. But at the same time, there's more than just that. And I think like that has fractured a little bit the relationship between company and and reporter, because companies now, I think, always fear that reporters are always digging for something, which is funny to me because that's our job um, and that's what we should be doing. <laughs> Somehow that has like become this like, oh, we have to be so wary of them when that's always kind of been the case. And on the other side of the spectrum, you have so much access journalism now that I think some companies are used to paying for what they want and not having to deal with reporters. It's a messed up industry <laughs> and, yeah. and we're making it work somehow. Well, I mean, you're hanging out, but you have all this time to figure out how to save the world, Joe. Exactly. Joe, each season, there's some kind of scandal or third rail issue that we like to focus on. Last year, it was Elizabeth Holmes and WeWork because we had books, we had trials, we had like TV series. This year, I feel like it's SBF and it's Elon, right? Your thoughts on Elon and what he's doing at Twitter. I feel like I should not say anything on this because both sides of this are so insane. Um, <laughs> Which is why I'm you're going like, to say something. <laughs> I know. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, the Twitter stuff, I feel like if I'm over it, everybody has to be over it. Like, it's it's just so exhausting. I feel like it's the same scenario that we were in with Trump, where they're using 
this shock and awe tactic to continue to be talked about and drive, you know, momentum or in his case, hopefully drive eyeballs to Twitter. And I think it's so obvious he's doing that. And like, we still have fall for it. And all these reporters are mad that they got kicked off some private social media site that, in my opinion, kind of sucks. <laughs> like, I don't know. I'm just like, guys, like there's so much else that is so important in this world. And I realize Twitter is important and that it connects people. And, you know, it's it's an avenue for you know, those in non-democratic you know, nations to speak out and to draw attention to atrocities and all of that stuff. And it's wildly important in that regard. But so many of us use it just like to complain about crap. And like, that's important and warranted. But like, what are we going to do? You know, he bought it. It's his. Like, I mean, to <laughs> I mean, be fair, Elon is also over Twitter. Like he's like outsting himself. I mean, by the oh, time yeah. this comes out, he might have picked a new CEO, <laughs> but like as of today, yeah. he's like, great. <laughs> pour one out for that poor soul that has to take that job too. He's no different, I feel like, than the Joe Rogans of the world out there. He's out there for shock value. Yeah. And the only way that he gets rewarded for that is us covering it. And at some point, you know, it's a self-fulfilling cycle. He says something, we write about it. He says something else, we write about it. There has to hope be a breaking point, but I don't know what happens besides yeah. him shutting down the website. That perspective is refreshing because I would just say like it's the perfect medium for journalists who can be short and snarky and all that. Maybe you're right that we just should not care. But like on the flip side, you know, so many companies and organizations have built these very complex and expensive social media strategies like on top of Twitter. And I keep thinking, you know, how smart was that? And if that kind of goes away or like, what do you do? Yeah. You know, I was always shocked at how low referral rates were from Twitter. And I think like reporters are in this mindset. It's this vacuum mentality where it's like, oh, it's getting a lot of attention on Twitter. So that must mean it's by proxy getting a lot of attention. It's, it's an echo chamber. It's an echo chamber. And, you know, it was by not it was not a big referral for us. And I, I can't imagine it's a huge referral for these advertisers, particularly now, like when they have so much risk of being on there. It's always been tough for me to give the same legitimacy to the company for that reason, because it's it dominates so much space. But I don't know if its relevance warrants how much it dominates the space. I actually have always had this thought too, Joe, because I do actually feel like Twitter is this echo chamber. I'll tell you why. Like, so you guys know I live in Denver, but I worked in Silicon Valley. And so if you work in Silicon Valley, Twitter is like, you know, it's happening, right? Like everything's there. And then I would come back to Denver and I was like, I am the only person I know on Twitter. 100%. Yeah. I can't think of one of my friends that's like active on Twitter um, in the same way, you know, that we all are like, I mean, I sit there and I refresh it constantly all day and every day I hate myself for it, but yet I still do it. And I'm like, what value am I getting from this? And I haven't answered that question yet. And then, you know, I, can't, I imagine others hopefully have to be asking themselves that same question now. Does SBF get Twitter in his bohemian jail? Probably not, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He loves some Twitter. Let me tell you about a misuse of Twitter. Well, also, <laughs> he loves the media interview. I feel like we're sort of past that. But what was that strategy? Like, <sighs> do you guys feel like is this all going to turn out to be like some reality television show that we were included on? Like, it just feels like we're in a... What was that show with uh, Jim Carrey? Truman Show? Yes. Yeah. Like the Truman Show. It's, exactly. It's like, we're going to hit that we wall. All, we're going to take the boat out and hit that wall and we're going to be in SBF's world. Yeah. I feel like we all saw it happening, right? Like, I mean, I know there were everybody out there trying to legitimize the industry, but it was so clear, like, there were no controls anywhere. Like, I, I know I didn't know that for sure, yeah. or else I would have reported it, but like... I just felt like if you thought it was going to end any other way than something like this, you like weren't paying attention. And now that yeah. it's happened, the media interviews he's been doing, I'm like, he must know something that we don't know. I mean, he must, right? Because I was like, why would you, why would you go on 
anything or say anything. And this goes back to like, I love like on background on like, I will do, I'm definitely lean more towards talk than don't. That's why I have a podcast. Uh, but, but like <laughs> at a certain point, I'm like, dude, do you want to go to Bohemian jail? Shut up. Oh, exactly. It's like, I'm not even a lawyer. You know what? I'm like, buddy, like I could probably give you some legal advice here. Like you have, I mean, who the hell knows who the rep- lawyers were at this company? Like based on everybody else there, I'm like, can imagine it's probably like two 12 I mean, like a first a year coat. law student, right? <laughs> yeah, they exactly. were all dating each other and living in the same penthouse, right? Exactly. Yeah. That was an awesome story that, that Coindesk got. And I think it just, you know, it goes to show like there's so much value in having these specified publications because these industries are getting so much money and they're getting so complex that if you don't you know, have somebody really devoted to covering them, like you miss those kind of things. Yeah. I mean, if you think about every like Theranos, WeWork, SBA, I mean, all of them were brought down by a news article. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And I think that regulators were sort of led by the stories. I mean, it was like today, I know this podcast is not coming out today, but they released some of Trump's tax returns. And if you read the New York Times story, they're like, as we reported, because remember a couple of years ago, they got the documents and I think they had it right, you know. And I think they led part of that. They they sort of helped lead the committee in the right direction because they had the story first. My former editor, Tom Krasett, when protocol was shut down, he wrote a message that I've been thinking about a lot lately. And he's like, this is just a good reminder that one of the best things that could happen to you as a journalist is for you to be written about. And I realized like I had never had like something I was involved in be written about. And to be able to see it from the other side, like how it was being covered, what was coming out as like background. And and it wasn't, you know, I'm not going to pretend this was like the scale of Theranos. Like there's like two articles about it, but it was just like enough for me to be like, wow, like this is a really eye opening experience because I've always been on the other side of it. I think it was a great learning lesson that, you know, I don't, I hope not every reporter has to go through, but it was like a very good like way to see, okay, this is, you know, what happens and the, all the frustrations that I have are similar to, I'm sure, all the frustrations that these companies have when we report on the stories that they don't like. So I at least had some empathy now, maybe, that I didn't have in the past. I think we have to end on that deep thought. I know. Like, it doesn't get better I know. than that. Like, what a deep thought that was, Joe. I know. And it wasn't even mine. You know, you're again, you're I'm so just... spiritual in your unemployment. <laughs> I know. You're going to see me and Adam Newman barefoot on the beach. Right. Uh, just... Fixing the world, yeah. you know, one shared office space it, at a time. If you're on the beach with Adam Newman barefoot, I will, like, things went sideways somewhere. Yeah, that's not how this <laughs> is supposed to end. Yeah. It, or you'd be in the Bahamas, right? One or the... Exactly. Yeah. About to get arrested. So, somewhere probably. this went sideways for you. Joe, we know great things are ahead for you. Whether you want to stay uh, on the light side, move to the dark side, we would welcome you. But I, I have a feeling you've maybe got some more stories in you. Yeah, we'll see. Thank you so much for joining us. It was great. Thanks for listening to Just Checking In. Follow us at, at Kiana Corliss and at Rebecca Buckman. Just Checking In is a StudioPod media production. Our producer is Teresa Buchanan, and our show coordinators are Nicole Genova and Alex Karkos. 